0: My name is Chris Lancer, Pastor Chris, as Pastor Tom uh, introduced me. Um, Today I want to tell you about a Jewish man. Does anyone know a Jewish man? Does anyone know a Jewish man in their heart named Jesus? Yeah, so we're going to talk about a Jewish man. I saw some hands there. Good, good. People are awake, are alive. If I'm dancing up here, it's going to be really boring for you if you're like this. So just want to say, um, I'm wearing my little kippah right now. Because we're talking about Jewish people for a moment. Let me give you a couple things about myself, a couple personal things on a journey. Um, If you see me and you have known me before, you may see that there is less of me. Please know this. I am not sick. I actually was on a health journey and have lost about 60 pounds. And thank you. I'm to my goal weight. So please don't worry for me. I know people have been catching me in the hallway you've lost weight. Is everything okay? I'm like, everything's great. Oh, okay, good. You're not sick, are you? No, I'm not sick. So just want to get that out there. (laughs) Secondly, this fall, I began another kind of journey, which is I began working on a doctoral program. And this doctoral program is in Messianic Jewish Studies. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we go. So today, I want to tell you about a Jewish man, a follower of another more amazing Jewish man who was also the son of God. We're going to pick up this Jewish man, Paul, in Acts 17 today. Paul is on a journey with God for others. And from this, I want us to look at the journey that we are on with God for others today. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear your heart today. We want to know what you are doing in this world. We want to come alongside Lord, this world that we are in, that in many ways is in chaos, but Lord, you call us to be in peace because, not because of the circumstances, but because we know you and we can have your peace. You said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Lord, as we hear today, help us to receive your peace and have that in our hearts and your joy and love and let it overflow into the world around us that we may bring life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as I, some of you have heard me teach in the school of the Bible or some other uh, places and I think it's very important as we do this to learn about some of these questions of the who, the what's, the where. When you're reading scripture, it's important to recognize scripture is written for us but it's not written to us. So we don't have the direct context ourselves. It's not like it's written to Chris Lancer in the 21st century, whatever. No, it's written by people in the 1st century in a context to a context. So they have understanding that we don't necessarily of the context it's written in. So let's talk about who Paul is. Well, first of all, Paul is a Jewish man. Paul was a Pharisee. What do you think when you hear the word Pharisee? Boo down with the Pharisees. Jesus didn't like them either. Well, let me tell you what the Pharisees actually were. Let's go 160 years back or about 190 years back before Jesus was preaching when we heard about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were actually a revival movement within the Jewish community. In about 160 BC, they recognized that they were not following the laws of God and they were turning back to follow the laws of God, This was a good thing. This is a beautiful thing before God. And as Paul says in Romans 7, the law is good. So it's not an evil thing. So what was happening in Jesus' day? Well, you had the law. And then as many revivals happen, and as the move from revival to legalism happens, we see this a lot. If you're doing the history of revival services that we've been doing on Sunday nights, Let me tell you, if you haven't done it, they're recorded on our website. If you have done it and you've been following this, you will see the good side of revival, but you'll also realize these are just people, and people do stupid things, and say things, and pride gets in, all sorts of things. So, same thing here. The law is good, but what happened is the Pharisees took the good law and said, well, and some of this may be well-intentioned. Well, if we don't, want to do this wrong, let's also make sure that there are rules around this. And then let's put rules around the rules. And then let's put another set of rules around the rules. And where the law might be here, there are series of fences around the law. And what happens is these become rules that nobody can follow. Jesus was confronting that because everything became about the rule and missed the whole spirit of what God was saying. Remember, we have the same God yesterday, today, and forever. God didn't do a makeover God edition, when Jesus came. God was the same. His law is good. And that's what Jesus said. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So that's what was going on in the context of a Pharisee. So Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the law. Now, he had some other junk around it. But he knew the law, and he knew it well. And even in his own treatises, he says, I was flawless as following the law. Paul was also there when the first martyr, Stephen, died. He was kind of overseeing it. Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 8, they're stoning him to death. And he says, says, I see Jesus. (laughs) And they're like, ah, more, more. Right? Get rid of this way, this group of people, the way following Jesus. And Paul went from a persecutor and killer of the way on a trip to Damascus to take out some more of this way. These people following this guy Jesus and they're saying he raised from the dead and the whole bit and he has an encounter and he's blinded for several days. He goes into the city. God speaks to Ananias to go lay hands on him. The scales fall off his eyes and I believe that was both physically and spiritually because he begins to see who this Jesus is and he goes from this guy who is persecuting the way, to a man who's preaching about the way, the way, the truth, and the life. This is Paul that we're talking about. He was a keeper of the law. He argued the law does not save, but faith does. But he himself, being a Jew, kept the law. He said, I'm all things to all men. To the Jew, I'm like the Jew. To the Gentile, I'm like the Gentile. He knew some secrets from God, and he was one who went to synagogue all his life. Pastor Tom preached last week, if you were here or if you were here, by the way, if you're streaming, hi, hi everyone. Um, If you were streaming or if you were here or if you saw it later, he preached about Paul and Silas in the jail, in the Philippi jail, and how God shook the place and they found freedom and they were able to go and of course people were saved. We're going to pick up from there. The first part of Acts 17 I'm going to tell you about, and then the second part we're going to read, and I'll have you stand at that time in honor of God's word. But for now, here's what was going on. The beginning of Acts 17, so they go from Philippi, they go to Thessalonica. You know, Paul to the Thessalonians, it's those books. Um, So they go to Thessalonica, his first visit there. What's Paul's strategy? Well, Paul does this. He goes to a synagogue, he's very comfortable at the synagogue. He goes through scriptures with the Jews and God fearing Gentiles and tells them about it. Well, what was the impact? Some Jews believed. Some God fearing Gentiles believed. And some other Jews became jealous, got some rabble rousers for the marketplace, and went, hey, let's get him! And create a riot, which in Roman, if you're in Roman or under Roman rule, that's a bad thing. Don't do riots. Rome was all about suppressing riots and suppressing any uprising against the government. So as soon as there was any commotion, the government got involved. So, and the Jews knew this, right? The Jews who were not believers, but the Jews who didn't like Paul and were jealous. So they rose up against him. And what was the impact? He had to go. So the local Jews, Jason was one of the local Jews who was housing them. They went in, they said, where is this guy? He's gone. So... Anyway, so they go to the next place, Berea. What does Paul do? He goes to a synagogue. In the synagogue, he goes through scriptures with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who are hanging around the synagogue. Then what is the impact? It says many Jews believed. Many Gentiles believed. But the jealous Jews from Thessalonica came the few miles away because they heard Paul was there. And they start going, hey, started some noise again. Well, guess what? Same deal. Paul's out. This time, the people who are with Paul say, listen, you can't, you got to go further than that. So Paul goes to Athens. And this is where we pick it up in our text, which is Acts 17, 16 through 34. So now, if you would, would you stand with me in the reading of God's word? Here we go. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw Everywhere in the city, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things. And we want to know all about it. It should be explained that the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in mad main temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs He himself gives life and breadth to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist." Some of your own poets have said we are his offspring and since this is true we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he Prove to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection from the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. God, would you open our hearts to what the Spirit is saying today? Would you let your word come to life in our hearts and to motivate us to action as Paul was motivated to action? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Paul arrives in Athens. The first thing that our text tells us is that he was troubled by many idols. He was bothered. I don't know if you've ever been in an experience where you've been in a worship setting that is not your own. I have been over to India and in countries which practice Buddhism. so India is Hinduism predominantly, Buddhism. Um, I've been in uh, Islamic mosques. I've been in a variety of places where there's other worship going on. And sometimes I do feel a heaviness. And I think that that is maybe God's heart of desire to reach people. And so I can imagine what Paul felt as he was troubled as he walked in, seeing all these many idols to all sorts of things, even an unknown God. But what does Paul do? Guess what he does? He goes to the synagogue, yes. He went through scriptures with who? Jews and God fearing Gentiles. It seems to be kind of his pattern, doesn't it? And then he also went to the public square. And there he encountered Epicurean philosophers, Stoic philosophers, local people of all sorts. And it's interesting, Epicurean philosophers are people who have a belief that pleasure is the goal of life. I think we have people like that in our culture today. I think we have Epicurean philosophers amongst us. And then there were Stoic philosophers. Stoic philosophers were about the inner life and virtue and making yourself good enough. I think we have some of those in our midst as well in the city and in the region. Then there were also all the other people and there was clearly someone from the high council. It would be as if someone's down State Street and speaking about God and his goodness or whatever Paul was preaching to them. And They said, hey, you're talking about some strange things, a man raised from the dead. I want to bring you up to the city council of Madison. I want them to hear what it is you're talking about. Let's see what you have to say and our text said that they all love talking about ideas anyway so Paul goes in front of the high council the Aropagus Aropagus is a funny word it's a Greek word it means the rock of Ares, and sometimes so this is the rock of Ares. Ares is the Greek god of war the Roman god of war is Mars so in your Bibles it may say the sermon on Mars Hill that's why, how, how you get Mars Hill Anyway, interesting factoid if you're into that stuff. Um, But what was significant about Mars Hill or the Er Er Aeropagus, there we go, the Aeropagus, is that this is where the high council of the city, the city council had met. And this is a good-sized city, right, Athens? The city council had met for centuries. It was where the learned of the learned went, where they wrestled out issues around the city and what was going on. So he goes, whether physically to that place, maybe so, but at least appearing before those people and anyone else who wanted to listen. Paul begins his preaching. He said something like this, right? Idols, all I see is idols. Is that what he said? No. That's not what he said. He noticed it. That's not how he preached. Maybe he said something like this. Turn or burn. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. Was it? I think that, was that in the message? Scripture? No? Okay, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it was, well, if you knew like I do, you'd beg me for the answers. I've got it figured out. You poor people from Athens. Shake my head at you. No, did Paul do any of that? Did Paul say, you got to be saved? No. Did he ignore the people? I have God. I don't need these people. Why would I preach to them? Me and Jesus, we're all good. The world's going to hell in a handbasket anyway. I don't need it. No, Paul didn't take any of these approaches. What Paul did is he recognized some things about them. He recognized that they were on a religious journey. And he said, men and women of Athens, I see that you are a religious people as I was walking around your city. I see that there were shrines to all sorts of gods, even one that is the unknown God. And then he begins to tell them about who that unknown God is with the message of the Messiah, Jesus. Now, the unknown God is really interesting in Greek. You ever hear anyone say I'm agnostic? Yeah. Well, the word unknown God is agnostos theos, agnostic God. Which is really, and agnosticism really is, I haven't decided, I don't know if there's a God or not. So it makes sense, unknown God. But anyway, I find that stuff kind of interesting. So Paul uses this unknown God as the basis for a message. Paul is finding what they're doing, finding where they're at in their spiritual journey, and engaging them right there where they're at. What was the result? Some laughed. (laughs) Whatever. Some wanted to hear more, and some believed. That names prominent men and women of their city council. In each case, who are they believing in? Jesus as the Messiah. This is the unknown God that people are responding to. This is the heart of God that people would know the unknown God and find him for themselves. But what compelled Paul to go? Let's listen to Paul's own words in Romans chapter 1, verses 14-15. through 15. He says this, for, for I have a great sense of obligation to people in both civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. Now when he says a great sense of obligation... I don't get the sense that when he says good news that he's feeling obligation kind of like when your you're kid and your mom says, you have to clean your room. All right, I'll clean my room or I got to do the dishes. I get the sense it's from a place of joy and a desire that God has put in him to bring this good news to others. And I believe it's God's desire to follow God in these simple ways. First, to know the unknown God ourselves. Secondly, to be overflowing with the goodness of God that we have to share, that it just comes out of us because there's so much that God has poured into us. And thirdly, to follow Paul's steps in how to love and share with others his goodness. But before we can even get to sharing, we have to realize some things about people. First, each person's on a spiritual journey. Secondly, each person God designed to have a God-sized hole in their heart that they will fill with all sorts of other stuff, but it still cries out for God. And thirdly, that God wants us to live from a place of being loved and identity as a son or daughter of the Most High God, not trying to earn our way into heaven, but already being part of the family that we get to enjoy the privileges, the blessings and all that comes from the Lord. That he who freely gave to us, we can freely give to others. God wants us to come from that place as we reach people. Let me go on to the next verse here in Romans 1:16. Paul then said, "For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes." The Jew first, and also the Gentile. I want to take Paul's two categories to talk about people that Paul went to and that I believe God wants us to go to. First the Jew, and then the God-fearing Gentiles. So first the Jew. Tell you a little history about me. I come from a Jewish family. Well, partially, half-Jewish. I don't know, do I? Half-Jewish family. Um, (laughs) My mother's Jewish, my father's Catholic. And growing up, in my mother's home, we would celebrate some of the high holidays, going Jewish, and celebrate Passover and Hanukkah and sometimes Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and doing that. Um, And when I was with my dad, we'd celebrate all the Catholic holidays. And so my mom, we did some Jewish stuff. My dad, we always did Catholic stuff. It was a given, Um, And my mother, who is a professor, is very well known in her field. And she was always invited to be on boards with a variety of people. And one particular board she was on with a variety of Jewish leaders. I'm going to pause in my story to say this. I did talk with my mom and had permission to share this. I don't want to dishonor my mom or you to think that I'd be dishonoring my mom. And she texted me after first service and said, I was really moved by your message. Thank you for the way you honored me. So so here's my mom who's on this board with some prominent Jewish leaders and somewhere in the conversation we got to me being a pastor and she said, I don't even tell people you're Christian. I don't even, that's, that's not part of the conversation. And I remember I was kind of hurt by it and bothered and I don't remember if it was in that moment or if it was a few weeks later that I called her and said, Mom, what, what gives? I mean, what's, look, I'm not, you choose, you have chosen a lifestyle that I don't, that I wouldn't choose You've made decisions. You have views that I don't agree with. Why why would you like blockade that? I'm not ashamed of you. Like, why would you do that? And her response was, it's complicated, Chris. Which I know from my mom means this. This is a response that says, Chris, it's going to take a long discussion, and we're not going to agree on this in the end, and I don't think, I just don't want to do it. We're going to get upset at each other, and so let's just not go there. And so I got a little Jewish and I said in my head, oy vey, all right, what do we do? Well, fast forward a little bit to today. So at the beginning of the semester, I told you that I'd started a program in Messianic Jewish Studies, a doctorate program. And in this program, I'm taking Hebrew right now, which is both difficult but a blast of learning to read scripture. We're actually translating the scripture from the Hebrew Bible out of Hebrew, it's really cool. You learn little subtleties and stuff. And I geek out to that in languages. I love languages and culture. Um, and also a course in anti-Semitism in the church and public square. And when I first signed up, you know, I have to take this course, and I'm like, in the church? I understand the public square. I've seen some of that. But in the church, and I was like, huh, oh, that will be interesting. You know, is this going to be some big beat the drum of, you know, oh, these people are doing this and kind of... And I found it wasn't the case at all. It's uh, actually run by Dr. Rossner, who is a Messianic Jewish woman, professor. And uh, she has opened our eyes to some of the history of the church, some of the history of Jews, and how they coincide. And it has been a very mixed history. The Christian church has done some great things for Jews and some horrible things for Jews. And I want to tell you, I don't want to give this off balance, but you're going to hear more about some of the horrible things, because my goal is to help you to understand the perspective of what a Jew experiences when they hear a Christian want to come to them and tell them about Jesus. So as early as 150 A.D., just 50 or 60 years after the New Testament was complete, Justin Martyr, a church leader, stated that the Christian church has replaced ethnic Israel. Now, hold on a second. Ethnic Israel, God made a covenant with, with Abraham. I will bless you to be a blessing. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And God so much went, and there were several covenants that God made. And God went so far to say this about his covenants with Israel. He said, my covenant with Israel will not break Maybe the moon has to go away. If the moon goes, the stars go, all these things. If the galaxies go away, then maybe I'll break my covenant with Israel. I don't know, I ask you, have the moon and stars and everything gone away? God has not broken his covenant with Israel. But just 50 years after the New Testament was written, we're already starting to get this perspective in the church, which comes to a thing called replacement theology. It says the church is the new Israel, And this is prominent in some some groups. The church is the new Israel and the Jews are unnecessary. And you will hear some of the ideologies which came out of that shortly. So the early church in Constantine's era decided to separate out Jewish holidays from Christian holidays. I didn't know this until I took this course. I was really surprised. But I always wondered why Passover and Easter aren't like in the same weekend. Because You probably know this. Maybe you don't. When Jesus was at the Last Supper, that was a Passover supper. So it's during the celebration of Passover. But sometimes Passover is a month away from Easter. And I was always like, why is that? Well, here's what they said, and here's why they separated it. It was to separate from the detestable company of the Jews. That's why we need to make these changes. And this kind of rejection of the Jews continued throughout history. In 8th century, the Second Council of Nicaea, there were all sorts of declarations made which really, made this idea of Jew and Christian very, very separate. And it led to a level of persecution. You may have heard of the Spanish Inquisition. The Jews were a key focus of the Spanish Inquisition. It began by saying, be baptized or be expelled from the city or this community. I don't want to have to be expelled from Madison, Wisconsin. I like where I live. That would be a hardship for sure. And then it went to be baptized or be tortured until you decide to be baptized. So you have false conversions, right? Conversions under duress. And then it was be baptized or be killed. And this was a part of the history. And this was done in the name of Christianity. Let me give you a few quotes from prominent Christian figures. Peter the Venerable said this, Truly I doubt whether Jews can be truly human. Pope Innocent III said this, the Jews are condemned to perpetual slavery because they killed our Lord. Did Jews kill Jesus? Yes, no, no. No, what did Jesus say? First of all, it was the Romans who did, if you follow it all. It was the government. Jewish law says you can't do that. So they convinced the Romans to do it. What did Jesus say, though? Did he say that He was taken by the the Jews or by the Romans and he had no control over that. Oh no, God forgot me. No, he said, I lay down my life. I voluntarily lay down my life. And I do that for you. He says to Peter, after cutting off the servant of the high priest's ear, he heals him first of all, and then says, Peter, don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels down right now? I am laying down my life of my own will. As the Father has asked me. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. Our sin killed Jesus. And I am so personally grateful he went to the cross, that I have redemption and covenant relationship with Jesus. Luther. Luther, this started with the Protestant movement, right? Great guy, lots of incredible things. He was very much for Jews. And then about 24 years later, after saying we should be for the Jew, he went to a different place. Now, historian Eric McStaxis talks a little bit about this and said he may have had some dementia because of some other things that were going on. So it's good to know that. But let me tell you what he did. He wrote a 77-page treatise called The Jews and Their Lies. And in the 77-page treatise, he talked about why the Jew is horrible, why the Jews should not be part of society, why we need to get rid of the Jews. And he he gave a seven-part list that included I'll give you a couple of the things. Burn all their synagogues where they have this devil teaching. Burn the schools where they are studying the Torah, which is the word of God, which is ironic, right? And expel them from the land. You leaders would be good to expel all the Jews from this land. One of the reasons I really love what Pastor Tom is doing with the history of revival is because we learn great moves of God but we also learn that they are flawed people who do some wrong things and if you go just on what they do wrong or if you grab onto that you're going to have a, really, a real misunderstanding of who God is and people use that for wrong things. And so Luther did some great things. There were some very right things he did. This was far off. And for a man who loved the book of Romans, I couldn't understand how he got there. But he got there. Fast forward 450 years after Luther's birthday. There was a new government in place in the country that he was in. This was 1933. I want to show you how they were advertising their party. It was the Nazi party. Would you put up that slide? The Nazi Party had this. Hitler's Kampf und Luther's Lehr das deutschen Volkes gute Wehr. That is Luther in the picture with the swastika in the background. This was the rise of the Nazi Party in 1933. Here's what it means. Hitler's fight. Now that's Hitler's Kampf, if you know any of the history of Hitler, he wrote a book when he was in jail called Mein Kampf, My Fight, My Struggle. And this is what they're talking about, and it had been publicized. Hitler's fight and Luther's teaching are the good defense of the German people. Now, most Jews will say that it wasn't the Christian church that caused World War II and the Holocaust. And they won't argue that it was Christians. Many Christians helped Jews in the Holocaust. But it was this misguided peace that they said, see, see, God wants Jews to be gone. And it's funny because Luther puts in this document that Jews should be expelled from the land. Almost prophetically, 450 years later, this process begins called the Holocaust. If you were a Jew, would you trust the Christian? Truly, as I was doing more research, and by the way, this only scratches the surface of some of the stuff I'm telling you about today. As I was doing research papers and writing uh, in this course on antisemitism in the church and the public space, I had some revelation. And I began to see how the Jew sees Christians often. It's from this background of persecution after persecution after persecution after persecution. And often they can't see to the love of Jesus. So when you say, let me tell you about Jesus. they are like, whoa. And I began to understand why my mom wouldn't want to tell her Jewish board that I'm a pastor. That I'm a Christian. Because it comes with these tags. I want to show you what Paul actually wrote about the Jew in Romans 11. He said, I ask then, did God reject his people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, no. God does not reject his own people whom he chose from the very beginning. Later in the chapter, Paul describes the Jew and the Gentile believer. He says the Jew comes from the root of God, God's chosen people. And he said, and the Gentile is grafted in where some Jews did not choose to follow Messiah Jesus. And then he warns this, he said, and do not be arrogant, With the Jew. For if you're arrogant with the Jew, do you not realize that if God can break off the natural branches, he can also break off the grafted in branches? It's a warning how to honor the Jew. And I think we need to walk in humility. I want to talk about a strategy first for the Jew today. How do we regain right relationship with Jews who are rightly reticent to be in relationship with Christians? First, I want to suggest we should honor the Jew. I love that we have a history here at City Church of honoring those who have gone before us. And I think it's very important. But as the Christian, we need to honor the Jew who has gone before us Who has maintained Scripture as we know it? The Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And Jews spent their life becoming scribes, where their lifelong goal was to copy letter for letter, word for word, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that we might have copies of it, that it may be passed along from generation to generation to generation. Think of dedicating your life to hand printing the Bible. That's a lot, but that was what happened. That's part of the history. How about Jesus? He was a Jew. Do you know the apostles were Jews? Do you know that David, a man after God's own heart who danced more crazily than I did up here, maybe naked, maybe partially naked, whatever, his wife sure didn't like it. You're embarrassing me. He's like, I'll be more undignified before my Lord. It doesn't matter, right? He was a Jew. He was a Jew. So was Esther. So are most of the biblical figures that we read about, all Jews that we honor. And I want to suggest this. Religious Jews are doing their best to follow the covenants that God made with them. And that is worth honor. So honor the Jews. Secondly, walk in humility with the Jew. To understand and know the context of Jews, or of Jesus, it's really important to know the context of Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus fulfilled the law. He followed the law. I mean, I, can't, I don't know if he wore one of these guys or not, if he wore a kippah everywhere he went or whatever, but he followed Jewish law. He himself was a Jew. And if you want to understand some of the things Jesus was doing, I want to encourage you to learn from the Jew. We can humble ourselves and learn from the Jew. When we take communion, that was not in some goofy way like, um, you know, here it is. I I asked, uh, I was teaching at a Bible school about context. And I said, does anyone know why Jesus used bread and used wine? "Uh Um, Maybe it's because there was bread and wine where they were? I said, yes, that's true. Does anyone know what the context was? And nobody immediately knew that. Now, it's a little pressure in a class when you ask a question as the professor or the teacher. Um, But that's at the Passover. You want to get the richness of communion. You got to look at what God was doing and Jesus was doing in the Passover. Powerful when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, and what those symbolized. Far more rich than what we think if we just have some wafer and some juice. It's powerful. We can learn from the Jew. Jewish practices are rich. And thirdly, love the Jew. I want to say this. Ever since God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. There has been resistance to that. Just like when we come to Jesus, there's resistance to that, right? In the spirit. And I am convinced that this is a spiritual battle, not a natural battle. Pastor Andrew and I were talking just a few days ago. He's like, I get this thing about you know, people seeing me, my dark colored skin and, and, you know, that I'm black and people can just pick that out. He said, but I don't get it for the Jew. He said, there are black Jews, there are, are uh, Middle Eastern looking Jews, there are white Jews, there's Jews of all sorts and yet there's still all this stuff against Jews. And I said, yeah. It's got to be spiritual. It's the only answer I have. Why would these people be attacked for millennia and driven out, and over and over and over again, if it wasn't spiritual. I'd say Jews have a target on their back from society. And Jews have risen up each time. Things are taken away. Kristallnacht happens. Things are destroyed. The Holocaust. Jews rise up again. And yet we have a state nation of Israel after all that with Jewish people. It's crazy. But I want to encourage you to love the Jew because they need the love and goodness. What the Jew needs from the church is love, grace, and humility. Not judgment, not turn or burn, not you need Jesus now or else. Folks, if you didn't realize this, we don't save anybody. God saves anyone. God saves. We are simply those who get to reflect Jesus to the world around us. And that is our goal. I was at the professor's house who leads this program, Dr. Rudolph, who does some amazing things in the Jewish community. He's one of the most humble men I've ever met. And we got to talking about anti-Semitism. I was going to take this class. I'm like, what do you think of whatever? He said, does it bother you? Does it stir you? And he said, yes and no. He said, sure, these things bother me. I, you know, the attacks against Jews and the things that are, and the way the church has historically done things. He said, but my heart is always how would Jesus have responded and I don't see Jesus responding out of anger or out of other things I see him responding out of love and grace and kindness and that's the approach we need to take and he said he started talking about that tree that I was talking about the grafted in and everything and I said this that he said what say that again and it was one of those times you ever have something come up in your mouth and you go oh that was good that wasn't me This was one of those moments. And I said this. I said, the church wants Jews to see Jesus. But Jesus wants the church to see the Jew. And I think that's really true. I think that's true of the the Jew. And I think that's true of all others who don't believe. God wants us to see the person, not the project. Not something that we're supposed to get people saved or anything. That's a wrong ideology. We can't get people saved. That's not who we are but we can reflect what we have been given overflowing with the love and grace and mercy of God because we've received love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Don't forget, folks, we were sinners who were deeply in sin, deeply deprived, and yet God came to us, brought us out of some of that and is still bringing us out of some of that if we're honest with ourselves and with others and bringing us into freedom. It's not our greatness. It never was our greatness. It's simply Christ working in us and the Holy Spirit bringing us step by step further on our spiritual journey with God. We have nothing to boast about, as Paul said, but in Christ Jesus alone. We're not here to save. We're here to love, to be filled with God's grace, and to overflow that and show the world The goodness, the tov in Hebrew, of God. So what about the God-fearing Gentile? That was the next group Paul went to. This is people of other faiths. Well, let's recognize this. People are on a spiritual journey. And God has put a God-sized hole in their heart that they can fill with other things but will never be satisfied until they know the true God, the unknown God. So sometimes people have spiritual practices, right? You see someone like this, bowing down and praying five times a day. We could shun that person. We could say, I want nothing to do with it. They're praying to a different God. This is awful. I don't want that to rub off on me. Or maybe we could approach that differently. And we could say, I see you pray many times a day. I also pray many times a day. Tell me about your prayers and tell me about your God. And let's see what conversation that spurs. Let's see where that goes. This is a person in their spiritual journey. Let's not misunderstand that there are all these different gods and whatever. There is God and there are false gods. It's simply that, folks. And when you look at it in that simple way, God's heart is that the Muslim comes to know the God that we know, the God of mercy and grace, not a God of judgment, not a God who holds in in the, what do you call it, in the balance. That's what I want. That holds in the balance, whether they go to heaven or not, in this, it depends on what the will of God is at the moment. That's not God's heart for them. That's not God's desire for them. And we can engage with people differently. The Hindu loves to make sacrifices to their many gods. They'll burn oil lamps off in something like this. And they'll set it down before the altar of a whole variety of gods. They'll go to the temple. I've been in many of these countries and been able to see this. And we can shun them. Or we can say, really, you like to make sacrifices to your god? I like to sacrifice for my God too. What do your sacrifices look like? And what does your God or your gods look like? Let's talk about that. Recognizing that they're on a spiritual journey toward God who wants to reveal himself, the unknown God. Do you like all these little toys? What about the Buddhist? The prayer wheel. Spin the prayer wheel. Spin the prayer wheel. I want to pray. I want to to work my way toward God. I need to get God. And you'll see, now this isn't a prayer wheel, this is actually just a little vase, but I got it from Bhutan, a Buddhist country, when I was there. It's kind of pretty. Um, What do they say? I'm turning the prayer wheel so I can do things for God. Really, I also like to do things for God. Tell me about why you do what you do. Let's talk about the God that each of us worships. Why not invite that in? Okay, what about this? The new age person or the person who simply, I'm spiritual, I don't go to any church and organize religion, I'm spiritual. Great, how do you see God? I see God in everything. You know, that's interesting because I see God at work all around me. Tell me about your God and I'll tell you about mine. What if we engaged that rather than being afraid of it? What would it look like? And we could use all the different religious ideologies of the world, all the different ways that people are trying to fill that God-sized hole in their heart that will never be satisfied without the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Jesus. They're worshiping the unknown God. And I would suggest to you that our call is to bring the unknown God to them. So maybe you say, I shouldn't be around people of other faiths. It's going to rub off on me. I want to suggest this to you. How much Jesus do you have? How much of the Holy Spirit do you have? Now, if you're new in your beliefs and you you aren't solid, I get it. No problem. This isn't a push, but it's an encouragement. We need to be overflowing and overwhelmed by God's goodness ourselves, And if we're not, hey, we need to go back to the altar. We need to remember what we were forgiven of, and we need to ask Jesus to fill us and overflow us, that we would overflow with the love for God and the love of God that others would just simply know because we are compelled like Paul to go. You know, people are not going to come into a church who are offended by the gospel. I don't know too many Jews who would say, I want to go to a Christian church, thank you. But we, compelled by the Holy Spirit, can go and love and honor the Jew. And we can go and love and honor the Gentile, God-fearing person and engage with them and bridge the gap that maybe they would like to hear about Jesus. Maybe, I wouldn't even say like to hear about Jesus. How about this? How about St. Francis of Assisi who said this? He said, preach the gospel always. And if you have to, Use words. I think sometimes we need more of that. We get so caught up in our ideologies and being right and this is right and that's right. Can we humble ourselves enough that what flows from us is the receiving of the goodness of God and the sweet aroma that Paul talked about? Let's be a sweet aroma into the world. People aren't going to come into the church. Like Paul, we need to go out to friends, families, and neighbors. And especially in Thanksgiving time, you might say, Oh, Pastor Chris, you don't know my friends, families, and neighbors. They're weird, they're freaky, they're this or that. Okay. But God does. God does. And God also knows that they're on a journey and He's already working in their lives. We're not there to fix them, to change them, whatever. We're there to bring Jesus. We're there to let the overflow of God overflow into their lives. We're there to be witnesses which is simply telling what Jesus has done in you. And hopefully there's enough overflow that that happens naturally. But if we don't go and we're unwilling to talk, then we're like Paul because we don't think we care about the world around us enough and those around us enough to actually share.